Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a broad look at global financial markets. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by Fiona Sincosa, who is a senior market analyst at City Index. Fiona, very much welcoming you back to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Great to be back on here and Happy New Year as well. And happy, yeah, happy New Year to you and Happy New Year to our listeners if you haven't caught a podcast so far this year. So it's been a fascinating start to the year so far, Fiona. We're going to be discussing a number of key markets. We're going to be looking in particular at sterling, we're going to be looking at oil, and we're going to be looking at some equity markets as well as the macro drivers out there. But before we, we get into it, please just be able to give us an introduction, first of all, to yourself as well as City Index for those people that aren't aware. Okay, thank you. So, yes, it, um, I'm a senior market analyst at City Index. Um, we are a CFD and spread trading brokerage. Um, been in the market now for 40 years, and I haven't been here for that long, but I've been here for <laughs> for, for a good number of years. So, um, and you know, we we deal with um, a complete broad range of markets, including equities, indices, currencies, commodities. Um, and, and yeah, they're traded on a derivatives basis. So you sort of using margin to trade. Fantastic. Thank you. So just look at markets out there so far this year, Fiona. It's We had a very strong end to last year. So we have to look at what's happened so far in the very early days of 2024 in the context of what happened at the end of last year. But we have seen a bit of choppiness out there. Of course, there's a number of geopolitical tensions that are impacting markets, and we'll probably touch on those a little bit later on in the podcast. But it just seems we had a very good end to, to last year, but things are just looking a little bit soggy out there at the moment. And it's interesting to, to note, particularly in equity markets, that we've seen a bit of a sell-off in, in here in the UK. Nothing particularly big um, compared to some of the gains that we saw uh, last year, especially towards the end of it. Again, in the US, uh, slightly weaker starts, um, although, again, a very strong finish uh, out there. And then we're seeing some interesting moves in markets such as oil, which we are going to discuss. But just as a as a very broad question, Fiona, when you're looking out there and you, and, and you see what's happened so far in the very early days of 2024, do you feel that could be a sign of things to come for markets for the rest of the year? Yes, I think that's a, a very good point. I mean, you know, talking about what we've seen so far this year in relation to what we saw at the end of last year, we saw a phenomenal rally across um, particularly October, November, beginning of December. Um, and and that rally has really, you know, took a lot of us by surprise. It was much stronger than perhaps we would ever expected. As the market started to think about when will central banks begin cutting interest rates? So, you know, there was this really definitive moment as, as inflation, particularly in the US, dropped sharply lower. And also as the Federal Reserve sort of had a, a, a more dovish than expected meeting um, in November. And that just really swing, swung, swung the market around. Um, when you see a huge rally in 
any market, it's quite often then to see a period of consolidation. Um, and I think that's, you know, what we're seeing at the beginning of this year is that period of consolidation where the market's sort of, you know, just taking a breather, it's sort of really um, weighing up the drivers that had been um, sending stocks higher at the end of last year and that boosted sort of, you know, demand for riskier assets. And and so, you know, there are still quite a few um, factors which the market is weighing up. There isn't necessarily clarity yet over um, you know, things such as when will the major central banks start cutting rates? Um, will we avoid sort of, you know, recessions? Will there be that soft landing? So, you know, I think there is this base case scenario of a soft landing in the US, in the Euro Eurozone and the UK, if there is a recession, is expected to be mild. But I think the outlook is going to be choppy and we'll probably be looking at a sort of a relatively rough flat end to the year. I mean, whilst you've got sort of an improving picture in the sense that inflation is falling, we also know that that's that's sort of it's going to be a bumpy ride to that two percent level. You know, recent inflation data has showed us that growth is also expected to be weak. And I think the main concern here, as we head particularly into earnings season, sort of in the US and also here in the Europe and the UK, is is stocks look pretty richly valued. Um, and so that does leave little room for error. You know, expectations are quite high when stocks have had a big run up like that. Um, and I think that's sort of what we're going to be to be watching out for is, you know, are we seeing the fundamentals that support that solid rally that we saw at the end of last year? And that's what we're waiting to see. So I'm going to pick up on interest rates because you mentioned it there and, and tie that in to some extent with, with equities and the rally, because the rally in equities last year was, was pretty substantial uh, over the last couple of months of the year. And that was, as you mentioned, Fiona, uh, the markets pricing in comments from the, the central banks uh, suggesting that they were done with, with interest rates and then the markets really front running in pricing in interest rate cuts as soon as March of this year. But we're starting to see a little bit of pushback uh, from that, particularly from the ECB today. There were some comments from one of their officials that investors shouldn't be uh, banking on interest rate cuts from the ECB uh, in early 2024. And of course, if we're looking over in the United States, all eyes are, of course, there there's a huge market pricing for, for interest rate cuts, but it's not really being followed up by central bankers in terms of their projections that they, they gave us at the end of last year, as well as some of the comments that the officials are making there. You know, looking at this picture from a top down scenario and, and looking at these influences on markets, do you think that there is a little bit of vulnerability to some extent? inequities, given that strong rally that we've had, and also this disconnect between what the market's been pricing, if you're looking at interest rate futures and how much they're pricing, and what the, the Federal Reserve, for example, are, are actually saying. And could that make things pretty interesting for equities in the next couple of months if we start to see that disconnect stay with that big gap between uh, your market pricing and what the Federal Reserve actually does? Yes. You know, I think when market expectations for rate cuts in this case 
are not aligned with central banks, that does provide potential for volatility. At the end of the day, they can't both be right. So there does need to be at one point a reconciliation either between the market re uh, you know repricing its expectations or by a sort of you know change in tone from the central bank um and and i think at the moment you know as you pointed out the market has been very much ahead of the curve on rate cuts you know expectations um have been since reined in from sort of you know the euphoria of late 2023 when the market really did seem to get quite carried away with expectations on rate cut i think you know as far as the bank of england were expecting that the market was pricing in around five times 25 basis point rate cuts in 2024 um and the fed uh, as far as the fed is concerned the market was of the first rate cut coming in March. Now, we have had those um, expectations dialed back, but not massively, which I still find really interesting, particularly with relating relating to the US. I mean, I think it's around a 70% probability of that first rate cut in March, which given that um, Federal Reserve speakers have been, I think, still relatively hawkish in that respect, you know, saying that we're not expecting to cut rates until, for example, um, Raphael Bostic said Q3. Um, you know, we've had several um, Federal Reserve speakers saying that it's just too early to really start putting dates to it. And that's the same with the ECB. You know, they've said quite consistently that it's premature to talk about rate cuts. And as well, we've had the same dialogue from Bank of England uh, Governor Andrew Bailey, who seems really quite insistent that it is definitely too early to talk about it. So, you know, from the market pricing in uh, rate cuts starting in, well, and, you know, around two months' time to sort of central bankers saying, actually, no, this isn't going to happen until probably, you know, Q2, uh, maybe even Q3. Um, there is definitely that disconnect there. And at some point, there's going to be the the reconciliation between that. And that's going to be very much, I think, the focus on not only central bank speakers, um, uh, the central bank meeting, we've got the um, FOMC in January, um, but also on macro data. You know, the, the data is become even more sort of in focus than it was going through last year. Last year, we knew that sort of, you know, the banks, the central banks were going to be doing, you know, hiking interest rates as inflation remained high. Then we got to that period where they've paused. And now it's, you know, what does the data say? Does the data tell us that the the um, inflation is going to be cooling more than expected, which hasn't been happening so far as we kick off 2024? But, you know, that's going to be the main focus. And it does leave, as we said, sort of, you know, potential for some volatility there. Fantastic. Thank you. So I want to move on now, Fiona, and discuss the pound, and particularly the pound against the dollar, because it's quite interesting. You pull up a chart of cable going back to the beginning of 2021. We're, we're pretty much bang in the middle of the trading ranges that we've uh, that we've seen since then. It's, of course, been a lot higher, but also a lot lower at this point in time. And again, we did see a strong end to 2023 from the pound against the dollar. So it'd be good to get your view, Fiona, on, on where this could go from here and what the factors are going to be that that drives uh, the pound going forward. Because I mean, if you look at some of the economic data that's coming out from the UK, it's not particularly fantastic. I mean, there is still a, 
a chance that we're going to be entering a mild, uh, a shallow uh, recession. But then on the other side, you you have the United States. And as you said, it looks like they're going to be heading for a soft landing. So that strength against the dollar that we saw at the end of last year um, is particularly fascinating because it, it goes against what's actually happening um, on the ground in terms of the economic data. So, so what do you think the, the main drivers of that was? And, and what, how do you see that trading going forward in the next few months? Yes, so the the pound US dollar rallied around or it has rallied around 4% um, since the beginning of November. And and a lot of that strength has been down to sort of central bank diversions. So, for example, we've had, you know, the Bank of England sounding more hawkish than the Federal Reserve was sounding at the sort of, you know, in that November period last year. Also, let's think, you know, UK inflation is still pretty sticky and high compared to um, the US inflation reading. So UK inflation, I think it's around 3.9% um, in the last reading. We do have inflation data coming out soon, but the US had cooled, although it's risen again, had cooled at the time yeah. down to around 3.2%. So, you know, we that that had been the main driver, had been, the, you know, the hope that the federal expectation that the Federal Reserve would be cutting rates more aggressively and starting earlier than the Bank of England. I think what we're seeing sort of come through now, and the Bank of England has, has stuck to that relatively um, hawkish stance. I think, you know, they, they seem to be singing from that same song sheet that they're, they're not going to be cutting interest rates anytime soon. And there is, I think, a bit of a mixed picture as far as the UK economy is concerned. You know, we just had that GDP data out recently, which showed the slightly stronger than expected um, November reading, uh, sort of 0.3% growth, um, which does mean, I mean, we're not out of recession risk territory yet. There is still a, a, a a possibility that the UK could tip into a recession. But we've also seen that PMI data, the service sector PMI data has been relatively strong. In fact, it's been stronger than expected above that 53 um, level. So, and we know that the Bank of England does watch service sector inflation data quite closely. Um, so up until now, you know, there has been sort of a little bit of strength in the UK economy. The inflation has been high and that's sort of been supporting this narrative from the Bank of England. However, I think if we just have a look at sort of, you know, recent um industry jobs data, for example, we've seen that the number of vacancies being advertised has dropped quite considerably. Um, uh, we've seen um, that, you know, there could be some weakening, some cooling in the labour market coming through. And I think if that did come through um, and we saw that inflation fall then quite considerably, quite quickly, I mean, we've had three think tanks um at the end of last week, saying that they see inflation cooling to 2% by April. Now, I think that's a little bit, a little bit um, strong. But I mean, you know, I think that that might be a little bit too optimistic as far as inflation levels are concerned. But, you know, there is this idea that inflation may cool um, quite quickly in the UK, in which case, then the Bank of England would need to start reassessing that, that the stance that it has. And I think the, the the sterling traders will then quickly switch their focus 
to the health of the UK economy um, and perhaps the perceived um, deterioration in the outlook of for the UK economy compared to the US economy, um, which is expected to, as we said, sort of, you know, hit that soft landing. Um, I think, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, though, this year with um, sterling US dollar, it could be a really interesting year because it's an election year for both in both the US and the UK. Um, whilst I think the election in the UK is still very much in the air as to, to, to when it may be happening, I think sort of, you know, towards the um, start of autumn um, 2024 is when we might be looking at now. But I think before that, we've got the budget, um, the UK budget, which again, I think is going to be a really interesting event to be watching as far as sterling is concerned, because if the government feels that it can do some giveaways, then that could actually inject um, slight inflationary pressures into the UK economy and boost sterling US dollar higher. I think at the moment, given sort of, you know, base case scenarios as we are of the soft landing in the US, a possible slight recession in the UK. Um, uh, I think, you know, a move above 128 um, in sterling US dollar is probably looking unlikely. Um, I mean, we're seeing it trade between this range at the moment of that 128 and the downside, the lower level I'd be watching for is a break below 126. Um, So that's where we're seeing it. And yeah, a break above or below those levels could could lead to a, a, a steeper sell off in the case of below 126 or a push higher above 128. Indeed, that's going to be a very interesting market to to be watching going forward. And I think you make some very good points there, Fiona, especially about the, the jobs market here in the UK, because over the last two years, when there have been concerns about the UK uh, economy, and there has been some weakness in some economic data points, the jobs market has really held up very well. But just in the last couple of weeks or so, uh, we've seen a number of the big recruiters. I think today it was Michael Page and a couple of weeks ago it was Hayes um, coming out and and warning about their own performance and and actually the wider industry. So that's going to be something that's very interesting to keep an eye on going forward. And we're going to move on now, Fiona, and discuss oil. Because if you would have told me... Um, in the middle of last year, that the US and UK were making strikes, airstrikes on Yemen, but then we have Brent down at $77 per barrel. I wouldn't have believed you. Um, but that's that's the situation that we are in at this point in time. Of course, there's an escalation. There's a human tragedy unfolding in the Middle East. It is having repercussions for global trade but we're not seeing that bid that you'd usually associate with such tensions in oil at the moment as i said we're below 80 dollars on brent so that the big question here is fiona what's holding oil back at the moment yeah i mean what you say is so true you know you just wouldn't have expected this sort of level of a non-reaction if you like from oil prices given the geopolitical tensions and risk that um, th- that are sort of escalating in the Middle East. But I mean, oil, we're definitely seeing as far as, a, I mean, you, you mentioned Brent there, I'm just going to mention WTI, which it seems to be, you know, trading in this range between 70 to $75 a barrel. And I think, you know, the reason that we're seeing oil prices relatively subdued given um, the 
the environment that's and the and the geopolitical um, risks that we're seeing is basically because of ample supply. Um, now, if we just go back a little bit to to the start of sort of you know 2023, the questions was all about sort of you know will the US and the UK and China will we you know weakness in the in the economic outlook? But actually, I think demand has held up pretty well across the year, but supply has outpaced that demand. And that's what's really brought the um, oil prices down. And it's interesting because uh, supply has outpaced demand, even though we've seen these um, cuts by OPEC plus with their oil production, um, it doesn't really have had, it hasn't had as much of an impact more recently. I mean, we had the, the OPEC meeting in November and they announced further OPEC cuts, but you know, the price sold off anyway. Um, and, and that was because I think as well, these cuts that we're seeing from OPEC more recently have been voluntary rather than um, sort of uh, mandatory. And so the market's reacting to that a little bit. Um, but also we've seen that non-OPEC output, so Brazil and the US, for example, um, has reached record levels. Um, so between that sort of, you know, ample supply from non-OPEC countries, the voluntary cuts rather than the mandatory cuts in OPEC, that's really been um, what's been sort of driven oil prices lower or, or limited any upswings that we have seen in oil prices. Because we have seen a couple, you know, when when sort of the geopolitical risk premium um, has really sort of, you know, um, been accentuated or, 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 or come more into focus, then we have seen the sort of, you know, rallies in oil, but they have been limited and the, the upside has been capped. And that is because of that, that supply focus. But also the other thing to keep in mind, I think, is um, as far as the Middle East is concerned. We know that oil supply itself isn't actually being affected at the moment by the um, level of um, tensions and 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 the the war in between Hamas and Israel. Um, it's much more to do with the geopolitical risk premium that we'd seen added onto the oil prices. So I think the war and the situation in the Middle East, as, as terrible as it is, as it is now, would need to um, ramp up quite significantly in order for oil prices to actually be, or sorry, in order for oil supply to be affected itself. Um, so yeah, so I think there's, I mean, the other thing to be keeping an eye on, I think there's, um, is, is what OPEC are going to be doing. I feel that they do have the price supported um, above that $70 a barrel in WTI. Um, but, you know, as we said, we've seen this year that they've already been cutting um, oil prices. Saudi Arabia cut their um, export prices to um, Asian importers to a 27-month low. So that's also saying something about the demand outlook that they're expecting from China, which is perhaps a little bit weaker um, than it has been in previous years. Fantastic. Thank you. So j just on all there, when you're looking forward to the rest of the year, we, we, we've discussed there in detail the supply side of things, which hasn't actually uh, been impacted that heavily. Is it really a demand side story for oil going forward for, for the rest of the year? Or oil trade is going to be looking more at global growth trends as opposed to uh, supply cuts by, by OPEC plus or what's happening in the Middle East going forward, do you feel? 
I think, yeah, demand could come more into the picture for 2024. Um, and I think you know because the 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 outlook for global growth is a little bit weaker, um, so that could impact uh, the demand outlook. Particularly China, China's going to be a massive focus. Um, I mean, if the U.S., for example, does manage to to hit that soft landing, um, you know that we're expecting it to to hit, then that's probably going to keep the U.S. side of the equation relatively um, calm. But I think there is a lot of focus on China. Um, we do think that they've seen, um, or they have seen across uh, 2023, the, the recovery from the pandemic um, lockdowns didn't really materialize in the way that we'd been expecting. Um, are we going to be getting the stimulus support in 2024 from Beijing that the Chinese economy potentially needs in order to to really ramp up again. Um, so there are going to be very much, you know, the focus on on China and its um, demand outlook as well. Thank you. So we're going to move on now, Fiona. I'm going to look at equities, the equity markets. We've picked out two sectors. Of course, we're in the midst of earnings season, both in the US and, and here in the UK. So we're going to look at, first of all, the UK supermarkets and then move on to US banks. Now, last week, we had the festive trading updates from FTSE 100 uh, supermarkets. Uh, of course, Tesco, Sainsbury's, Marks and Spencer's were among those reporting. From what you can see, Fiona, were there any standout winners? Was there a winner from the festive trading period for the UK supermarkets? Oh, good question. I'd, I'd like to say that there were probably two. <laughs> if I could take my pick, I'd say two. Do you know what? I was really impressed with Marks and Spencers. Um, you know, they they point, posted 8.1% uh, rise in sales over the past 13 weeks. Like for like food sales rose 9.9%. That was ahead of the 6.6% forecast. Clothing was up 4.8% against 2.8% expected. So, you know, some really solid numbers coming in. I mean, they did, Marks and Spencer did cite concerns over consumer confidence and economic uncertainty going forward. But I think the turnaround story for Marks and Spencer's has been really quite phenomenal. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, um, really given conviction these these figures that we've seen today have really given conviction to um to that turnaround strategy that we're seeing in place and it does seem to be gaining momentum so you know i do think marks and spencer's christmas sales as well they were topped only by discounter lidl and which is really interesting in itself because they're two extremes you know you've got the discounter lidl and then you've got the mns which you know is at a higher price point um but I think the thing is with M&S, it does tend to do quite well over the Christmas period as far as food sales are concerned. We see, you know, we do see um, households sort of, you know, just uh, going buying up, if you like, um, across that period. But then will they be able to maintain um, that new sort of market share that they picked up and those new customers. That's going to be the big question. And I think so far, you know, they've been doing really well. The share price, though, has had a phenomenal 2023. Um, the share price was up around 100% across 2023. Granted, that was after a terrible 2022, um, but it really outperformed the FTSE and, and the broader market. So, you know, I think they've had a very good run. My question is, how much further would they be able to run 
after such a strong 2023. So I think as far as sort of, you know, how much more we could sort of squeeze out of that share price right now is um is i think up in up in question and i think that sort of came through in the fact that we did see that slight sell off despite these really strong numbers um just because the market was disappointed that they didn't lift their guidance um meanwhile the other one that i mentioned that i was pretty pleased you know the thought did pretty well was um was tesco's who did lift their profit guidance Indeed. yeah so they lifted it to 2.75 billion up from um 2.7 billion again strong like for like sales they had you know a good christmas period um and I think that's also down to they're expanding their price matching with Aldi. So, you know, they're really focusing, again, on keeping those price conscious customers, particularly as, you know, interest rates remain high. Inflation is still a little bit sticky. So, you know, we haven't won that war on the cost of living crisis yet. And they seem to be there sort of, you know, um, supporting uh, the those consumers so yeah again another another company that i think did pretty well out of what could have potentially been a fairly difficult period yes that, i think that's a very good point you make there fiona the, these results can cause huge amounts of of volatility and the, the results from from what i can see were fairly good across all of them but the point you made there is an important one that that all of these supermarkets had a very strong 2023 uh, in terms of their share price and going into these results, they they had a number of good weeks going into it. So the, the sell-offs that we saw, or, or you know, the, the lack of any movement, I feel was more investors backing book, booking some profits there as opposed to being actually disappointed with what the companies did. But again, a very good point. You know, looking at where they are and where they've come from, it's difficult to see where they go in terms of the upside from here without any further more, uh, more data um, from those companies. So certainly an interesting sector to be keeping an eye on in the first half of 2024. And we're going to move on now and finish on the last point, Fiona, which is the US banks. They, they've been reporting over the last few days. I think we have some more this week due to report they're seen as a bellwether not only for the US economy but the global economy given the nature of their operations so what are the key takeaways that you've seen so far Fiona and what does it mean for the broader markets yes so they did they kicked off earnings on Friday we had JP Morgan Bank of America um, Wells Fargo Group and Citigroup and I think broadly speaking it was a little bit disappointing um, but that was but we saw a lot of sort of one-time charges that were being applied. Um, so particularly um, one-time charges to the US government bank rescue vehicle. And that was for the uh, the rescue of um, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, if we cast our minds back to the collapse of those banks Um back in March last year. So um, there were big charges that the, the banks uh, paid towards that rescue vehicle, which have impacted their earnings. Um, JP Morgan, you know, largest US bank by assets, missed forecasts with um, EPS down at, at was at 3.04, revenue at 38.06 billion. Um, again, Bank of America also missed forecasts. 
Um, Wells Fargo, interestingly, because I think this is an area to be, you know, just keeping an eye on as well, is the credit loss provisions. We've seen the credit loss provisions. So this is the amount that the bank set aside for bad loans increase and that sort of you know just uh gives us a clue about how businesses and people households are are managing um with their debt situations um and obviously when you have an increase in bad loss provisions then that is a slight warning you know that we're probably expecting um a slowdown as far as the economy is concerned so that's in line with with perhaps what we're seeing but wells fargo saw a particularly large jump in credit uh, loss provisions. And Citigroup had a slew of sort of, you know, one-off charges, um, not only for the, the the rescue of the SVB bank and the Signature Bank, but also um, an increase for in bad, um, bad loan provisions and also restructuring costs and charges as the bank goes through a very big restructure. Um, so we did see JP Morgan, as I said, they they missed forecasts for Q4, but they did rise. They were the only bank to rise after the earnings. And that was basically because the full year earnings showed a record, were a record high. Um, so although we saw that slight slowdown in Q4, across the year, rising interest rates and the increased cost of borrowing um, that the bank had experienced, um, that it seen sort of had boosted um, those um, figures to record levels and saw the uh, share price jump as well on the back of it. I think um, just as far as what we're expecting this week, Goldman Sachs on Tuesday will be a one to watch. Um, and this is all going to be about sort of, you know, the return of deal making, I think, you know, are we seeing the, the deal making environment improve again? Because Goldman Sachs, that's where their forte is, and that's where they've suffered in recent quarters as as deal making has dried up. Um, but you know, if we're going to start to see a return in deal making, then we could see um, an improvement in those figures. So just just a final point here, Fiona, in terms of the net interest margins. Now, this is something that that's pulled over here in the UK because. I mean, the, the FTSE 100 banks don't really have as much activity in the investment banking side of things as their US counterparts. You know, we've had two years or, or more now of, of interest rate hikes and, and, and interest rates being at elevated levels compared to where they were. And that's a real tailwind for banking earnings. Do you think there's there's some evidence or a slight concern that we're seeing that that cyclical a driver of, of banking earnings it is now finished and, and maybe that we start to see this cap earnings, particularly on the on the retail and, and, and business banking um, going forward for these larger organisations. Yes, a very good point. It's exactly what we've seen, you know, what we'd be expecting to see across this year. Um, you know, as expectations rise that central banks are going to start uh, cutting interest rates, that does mean that banks could expect to see pressure on their net interest margins. Um, and, and and that is something that is also going to not only um, uh, affect their income, um, but also their outlook. So we, you know, we'll be very much focused on um, outlooks, particularly for UK banks, I think, when they when they report later um, in the month, I do believe, or early next month. Um, and 
that's going to be, you know, a key focus. Is net interest margin expected now to start falling? And I think that's what we had seen as well in the previous earnings that we've seen, um, particularly here in the UK, is that expectation now of um, NIM to start easing. Um, And also at the same time as NIM is expected to start easing, we're also expecting to see those bad loan provisions increase. So, you know, it does mean that it could be a little bit of a tough time uh, for banks as we head into 2024. And again, this, this is going to be probably one of the most interesting sectors, I feel, for, for 2024 and see how they react uh, to the changes in interest rates. There have been a huge story over the last year, but certainly things are going to, to heat up there. Um, so, Fiona, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.